Hello, and many thanks for tuning in to Search for Truth. I'm very glad you can join me for the start of a new series of six talks called 60 Minutes to Raise the Dead. Our Bible teacher, Brian Johnston, seeks to place Christianity in context with modern society, which everyone has done throughout the ages since Christ walked this earth as a man. And each time, the validity of the gospel of Christianity has been upheld and proved right. So, as we go to Brian now, let's do so with an open mind, unfettered by any prejudices we may have, and listen to what the Bible has to teach us. Thanks, John. Recently, we posted an invitation to a talk about Christianity in our local church. We boosted the post so as to reach a wider-than-usual audience. One person responded, evidently unimpressed, simply and scornfully saying, People! It's the 21st century! I wonder what made him think that the Christian worldview is inconsistent with modern living. After all, Christianity has persisted throughout 20 centuries and across very diverse cultures. Its historical basis has often been challenged, but time and time again, careful research vindicates the case made for it. Its core message claims to solve the basic need of our human nature. Millions from every kind of economic and psychological background testify to the credibility of its claims, academics and royalty as well as commoners. But how do we defend Christianity against these modern critics? To use the Bible is seen as special pleading. Thankfully, there's evidence all around us for which the best explanation is the message of the Bible. Once its claim to be authentic is acknowledged as being without equal in all of ancient literature. Nobel Prize winners in science are among those who find no conflict between the Bible and science. The media portray it as otherwise, but this is to confuse where the conflict really exists, which is in the clash between two irreconcilable worldviews, those of theism and that of naturalism. The Apostle Paul faced a not dissimilar challenge in the first century. He once addressed a sceptical audience at Athens, one with no knowledge of Christianity and no sympathy for the Bible. He began by referencing the world around him, saying in Acts 17 and verse 24, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. The God whom Paul preached is a necessary being. I should try to explain what I mean by that. Clearly, it's not necessary for us to believe in his existence. I can even deny, or at least feign ignorance, of the law of gravity and still manage to fall out of bed in the morning. However, irrespective of our belief, the reality is, without God's existence, we simply would not be. And that's what Paul pointed out at Athens, as stated in these verses. How can we verify that? Well, the only other option that tries to explain our existence is the one that says, first there was nothing, then it exploded. The idea of a nothing that exploded into something is nonsense, whichever way you look at it. And here's why. If ever there was truly nothing, 
there would still be nothing now. You can't get something out of nothing, either spontaneously or over billions of years. And since that's the case, God as creator is a necessary being. Scientists recently discovered something further about our universe, which had already been predicted. In this case, it was what they described as gravity waves. The fact that we can predict what the universe is like shows us that it's not random, but obeys laws made by an intelligence far greater than our own. One famous scientist, reluctant to believe in the existence of God, said that it looked as if some superintelligence had monkeyed with the laws of physics. But let's allow Paul, the apostle, to get to his second point, for he continues in verse 26, And he, that's God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. You know, we've now discovered that there's a particular part of our genetic inheritance which we get from our mother, the mitochondrial DNA. And this indicates that all have descended from a single woman, the so-called mitochondrial Eve. The idea that all modern humans can be traced back to one woman supports biblical history, as in this verse. And what's more, when checked out against the real world, first results indicated that the rate of change in this DNA is awkward for those who advocate the evolutionary long-age claim. If correct, it means that mitochondrial Eve, the mother of all living, takes us back to the time of the biblical Adam, created before sin and before disease and before pain existed. Next, Paul hints at the purpose for which we were created when he says this, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Verse 27, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. To have no desire for anything is symptomatic of dis-ease. Experts mark the absence of desire as a sign of disease. When you no longer enjoy what you once did enjoy, it's one of the symptoms of depression. Arguments from desire are often invoked as evidence for the existence of God. And that's for this reason, that within humans exists a desire which nothing in time, nothing on earth, and no creature can satisfy. This suggests that something exists that is more than time, earth, and creatures in order to satisfy this desire. Augustine put it like this, Our heart is restless until it repose in thee. Paul said God made us with the inbuilt drive to search for and find him. You know, we already have a sense of God. May I ask, whom do you turn to in difficulties? Whom do you blame when things go wrong? When you watch the news on TV, what kind of thing gets reported? Almost always it's bad stuff. Good stuff isn't news. We expect good things to happen like mothers to love their children. This is because God is good and the source of all good. Actually, to all practical purposes, we worship whatever we fill our life with, whatever we're always thinking about, whatever we're always wanting to spend our time doing. It's here, Paul tells us, 
why it never satisfies, because we were made to find that elusive satisfaction in God. Then he says in verse 29, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. You know, a lady in church the other day was troubled because her son had asked her, Who made God? She'd felt unsatisfied by her answer. I asked her, Well, how long is a piece of string? Once again, she struggled to say anything, only smile, wondering where the conversation was headed. I explained that was also an unanswerable question. However, that doesn't mean any particular string has no length. Far less does it mean that no such stuff as string exists. It's unanswerable because we've not defined the terms. Which string are we talking about? Now, when someone asks, who made God? Which God are they talking about? Not the God of the Bible, because as we've seen, he's the only being who simply cannot not be. Because we're here, and without God's existence, we simply would not be. But because we are here, God must therefore be. That's who the biblical creator God is, in fact. The idea of cause and effect has been powerful in science. But what right have we to expect it to apply to the creator himself? Now, Paul turns to the so what when he says in verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. In case we've forgotten what repent means, this is to change our thinking and attitude about something, as in young Hemingway Jr., who came to hate the gun that killed his father. His father was the acclaimed author, but also someone prone to depression. He had a gun of which his son was very proud. Young Hemingway took pleasure in seeing it. But after that fateful day, when his father used it to blow his brains out, his attitude towards the gun turned to hatred instead. On his mother's instruction, he tossed it into the lake. When we repent, our attitudes similarly go through such a 180-degree about turn. The pleasure of sin, as we once viewed it, we now hold in contempt, understanding our sins occasioned the death of our Saviour and Lord. And we all need to undergo this change. Because, and this is Paul's last verse, because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. From that event in history, we know that God has visited this planet. Jesus Christ, God's Son, entered humanity and died so that he could be our Saviour, but was raised to be our judge if we don't receive him in faith and as the only one who can provide us with forgiveness. Thomas Arnold, formerly Professor of History at Rugby and Oxford, one of the world's great historians, could say, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. I leave you with this thought. 
Jesus' once sceptical disciples were convinced and maintained their belief in the resurrected Christ for 40 years or more. Suppose it had been a hoax. Then these untrained men must be credited with a miraculous feat. Compare what happened at the United States political scandal of Watergate in the President Nixon era. In the latter case, 12 of the most powerful men on earth couldn't maintain a lie for above three weeks. Yet we are asked to believe somehow that the 12 disciples succeeded where they failed and succeeded for 40 years. David Hume, the Scottish sceptical thinker, proposed we could believe in a miracle if the alternative was even less probable. This is evidence that demands a verdict. Once again, with this new series, there's a free book which can be yours if you write in by post or email. It's a digital e-book unless you specify that you would like a hard copy. As I say, um, just ask for 60 minutes to raise the dead by post or email and here's our postal address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wooten Bassett, Swindon, SN4, 8DY, UK. Search for Truth, PO Box 748, Ringwood, Victoria 3134, Australia. Search for Truth, PO Box 70115, Chilomini, Blantyre, Malawi. And our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, time's almost up. But I just want you to know how much we appreciate your interest in our programmes. It's been really great to enjoy your company and I look forward to you joining me again next week when we'll be taking a look at salvation and what it means to be saved. Until then, it's bye for now and very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. So see you again soon and in the meantime, may God richly bless you. Because he is...